listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. You know, we had that cold spell back here in the Philadelphia area, and all my friends from L.A. thought it would be great to give me a hard time on Facebook. And I don't know why they do that. They were just saying how it was all sunny and how we're freezing, and it was cold. Not Chicago cold, like they had it, but cold. And they gave me a hard time, and Karma came back and got him because the next day they had three days of rain, and I think it's still raining. So never make fun of people unless you have to pay the price. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who, you know, as doing my research, I found out that he co-wrote the, the theme from James at 15, which was a TV show I liked. And uh, he's, a, he's a great performer. He's a singer. He's a songwriter. He's, a, he's an actor. My guest is John Ford Coley. How you doing, John? Pretty good, buddy. How you doing? I'm good. Now, now, where are you located at? I live in Nashville, Tennessee area. I've been here since about uh, 99. Now... I have a friend, uh, Rich Redmond, Jason Aldean's drummer, who lives in Nashville, and he said Nashville has really grown up. I mean, grown, gotten a lot bigger. Have you noticed that? Well, you, you don't want a, you don't want a bad negative interview, do you? You don't want me screaming and hollering and jumping up and down and kicking stuff, do you? So, so we probably shouldn't talk about all the people that are coming to Nashville. <laughs> well, that- that's that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons why I left LA because you know I was in LA for eight. Well, they're years. they're all they're all coming here from LA, yeah. so uh, <laughs> you know that, that that's uh, kind of a funny thing. They're all coming here now. Now you grew up uh, when you grew up. You grew in the Texas area, and when did you start playing music? Actually, I started when I was about six years old. I mean, mom and daddy. They kind of caught me one time. I was at a barber shop, and they had the uh, the old footrest. And so I just probably about six years old, and I just sat down and pretended I was playing the piano. And they said maybe we ought to put the boy in music because again, you know, I I grew up with all kinds of music around the house. There was always uh, something some some music thing going on. Plus, being in the church, everybody sang, so you just kind of got exposed to it at a very young age. Now, when did you start actually playing then? I mean, they knew you were interested, but when did you start playing and somewhat taking it somewhat seriously? You're taking it seriously? Gosh, man, I think I probably took it seriously when I first got into the band. I had a, um, I had a piano teacher. Actually, he had seen me. I was playing, um, or I was, I was throwing paper out. So I would stop by his niece's house, and, um, and, I, and I would kind of play their piano. And so he kind of took a shine to me and he said, look, I tell you what, you want to learn how to play rock and roll? I played rock and roll. If you play all the classical uh, competitions for me, I'll, I'll teach you how to play rock and roll. I went, deal, man. So it was like he cost me like 10 bucks a month to do it, and I played all the, all the things for him, and I got really serious about it. Now, when I got really, really serious about it was when I was in college. And um, the thing that was interesting is that I, I hear I'm, I'm traveling back and forth and playing in the band, but I don't have the time to rehearse really because I'm doing all my schoolwork. I don't have the uh, uh, opportunity to have a piano around me, so I'm not really practicing very much. And they were going to fire me and, um, and hire somebody else. And I was driving to school. And in my voice, I heard as loud as I've ever heard it, I gave you the gift. If you don't use the gift, 
take it away from you, and I will give it to someone who will. And then I got scared, and I got really serious about playing music at that point. Now, now, when did you hook up with uh, England Dan, English Dan? Actually, Dan, Dan, um, Dan was in, in a band in school, and it was called Playboys Five, and they, they had a guitar player quit. And so everybody wanted a keyboard player, but Dan wanted another guitar player. So we, we just did not get along, because he wanted somebody else in the band. And uh, then later on, you know, we kind of discovered that we could we could play together, we could sing, and we would travel on, on various gigs, and we would sing all the Emily Brothers and Righteous Brothers songs and things like that. So we discovered that we had something of a natural blend, and we just kind of continued, you know, developing that sound over the years. Now, when did you go and just become a duo? That was about 1970, 71. Um, we said enough is enough. You know, we, I mean, we were making like 100 bucks a week in the band, which was really darn good for that amount of time that we spent in it. But uh, we, we really wanted to do the other things. So Simon and Garfunkel were popular. All these, all these other, you know, James Taylor, people of that nature. And we thought, we want to jump into this and, and do this because we've got this kind of a blend and, and we can we can do a duo. So that was about 1971. So where do you go? Do you move to L.A. or where where do you go? Well, man, we actually struggled. We kicked around Dallas for a long time. We played a lot of the different clubs there, the Rubiot. Ran into some really wonderful people, Michael Martin Murphy, um, uh, Michael Williams, just Alex Harvey who wrote... Uh, Delta Dawn and, and uh, Reuben James for, for different people. You know, we just we just had a lot of fun, but we figured that we wanted to get a little bit bigger. So we went out to L.A. a couple of times. We played some of the clubs there. They seemed to like us, and, and we finally just thought, uh, uh, let's try to get a recording contract. And then <laughs> trying to get a recording contract was really a trip because Dan and I had been playing in different bands, you know, all that time. Uh, before we became a duo. So we started off with pop, and then we hit, you know, all, all the songs that were on the radio, and then we hit the soul era, then we hit the psychedelic era. And, and so we actually ended up playing fusion jazz. So when we went into the record company, they said, look at us when we play our songs. They say, what are you guys? Are you country? Are you pop? Are you folk? Are you rock? I mean, are you classical? What the heck are you? And we go, uh, yeah, pretty much. And so it took us forever to get a deal, you know, because nobody could figure out what in the world we were. And uh, so we just kind of played around that, that genre for, for quite a while. Now, you get the deal. How did the deal happen? Well, actually, I mean, it was it was really interesting because Louis Shelton, who was actually part of the Wrecking Crew, he was a great guitar player, played the Boys and Heart and the Monkees and Barbra Streisand, and all the groups that were popular during that time period. And so um, Jimmy Seals, he had him come out to see us. And he liked us, and he took the tape from us, and then he sent it over to Herb Alpert, and he said, look, they're kind of a cross between Simon Garfunkel and you know, Bee Gees, the Bee Gees at that time, not the Bee Gees, that, what they became. And so uh, Herb said, well, you know, I really don't have any need for this. And he says, well, just take the tape and listen to it. 
So the, the story comes back is that Herb was shaving. He had our, he had our tape on. He stopped shaving. He called Louie and he said, get him out here. <laughs> so that's how we ended up in L.A. So you get out in L.A. Now, when do they decide to change your name? Because your name is John Edward Colley, but then they, you became John Ford Coley. And I guess Dan became England Dan because his brother was Seals from Seals and Croft, so it would probably be confusing if there was two Seals. How did that all right. How did that all happen? Because, you know, I Colley's a fine name. I don't, I don't you know, what, what did they tell you? They said we got to change it for this reason or what happened? No, all my life, nobody's been able to pronounce my name. My name, I've been called Cooley, Cowley, Coley, Conley, everything but Collie. And so, uh, we, Jimmy Seals, you know, being Dan's brother, we were sitting around one time talking. And he says, "Look, I've got the name for you," because Dan used to walk around using the English accent. And if you've ever heard a Texan attempt to mimic any kind of an accent other than a deep Southern drawl, it's it's kind of a comedic situation so uh he said call you england dan we'll drop the l on john's name make it coley like foley red foley and and so then i took the name john ford who actually was the last confederate general in the south that won the last battle of what's known as to, to most people as the civil war and so that's how it came up john ford coley and, um, I mean, it was very difficult for my parents, you know, because my dad would be in church and they'd go, well, Mr. Colley, well, what, is it Coley or is it Colley? <laughs> and so he'd just kind of sit there and go, oh, come on, guys, you know, <laughs> don't stop it. Now, you, you, but I mean, he, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. So people would call me when I first got that name, because again, it was right before Dan and I got the recording contract on A&M. It would change the names. And uh, people would call me, you know, solicitors and things like that. And go, uh, Mr. Coley? And I'd go, no, Coley. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was confusing. My kids are still confused. They spell it Coley, but they pronounce it Coley. Isn't it weird how we get used to things? Like, I got engaged in December, and I'm still catching myself calling my fiance now my girlfriend because you're just so used to something for so long and all of a sudden you go oh wait i gotta change something but it's and with your name it must have been a big process oh yeah well the thing you look at it you know for for your girlfriend as soon as you get married she becomes your ex-girlfriend right (laughs) so so you guys get the record deal and now i was reading somewhere where your first break you had a song called simone that, that became number one in japan yeah, we got, man, that, that was such a fun time because it was like 1972 and it became number one over there. It was on AM Records and we got to travel for about two or three weeks with Three Dog Night. We were over there for, for quite a while and it was my first time to be in Japan. So it was a wonderful experience in that way. All the food and, and the stories, you know, we went over there and when we got off the plane, we see the, there's a guy and a bunch of people. And then all of a sudden, he's kind of waving at us, and we're waving back. And then he's, he, he got a girl next to him. And thought, oh, isn't it nice? And he, he brought his daughter. And then all of a sudden, all these signs go up everywhere. Welcome, England, England Dan and John Ford Corey song, you know. And, uh, I mean, it, it was quite an experience going over there for the first time. 
it just it just amazes me. How did how did they like how did they become number one over there? How did people find out about it? You know, in Asia, I love Asia because first of all, they've got a very warm heart. They love love songs. They love romantic things, and so not much telling why something takes off in Asia. But it probably has something to do with love in some way. So this song, I mean, they made up stories about it. You know, why do you cry? Uh, they've got drawings. They've got comic books and things like that with it. And I mean, it was quite a surprise to us, but we sit there and it's not our culture. So it's, it's a little bit foreign to us. But still, I mean, going over there and, and being treated the way that we did. I mean, one, one of the things that happened, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Backstage Pass, and one of the things that had happened was I love languages, so I always try to pick up bits and pieces of whatever language I'm, I'm in. And so I looked at the girl, and she she taught me a couple of things. And one of them was Nihongo Wakarimashin, which means I don't speak Japanese. Well, Dan and I are playing, and I guess they were expecting three dogs a night, and the Japanese are very dignified, so nobody says anything, and they very politely clap when the song is finished. And all of a sudden, somebody yelled out something, and it, it, the whole audience got quiet. And Dan looked at me, and I just said, Nihongo wa tarimashin, and then I said something, I forget how it goes. But your accent is very nice. I don't speak Japanese, but your accent is very nice. All of a sudden, the place erupts in laughter, which, again, is not characteristic of them again. And the, and the, the interpreter is over on the side of the stage. She's got one hand on her mouth and one on her stomach. She's laughing like she, she's never laughed before. And Dan said, what did you say? And I said, I don't know, but I think it works. <laughs> So, so you're over there touring. You're having a taste of success, but now then you get released from A and M because Simone didn't do as well here. How does a record company release you? Actually, they just kind of say, you know, we don't think that things are going to work out any further. We can't see we can make any any further progress on it. And I mean, I loved A and M. A and M was a was a good place. Herb Alpert is still one of my favorite people because of the way that he treated us. And, and he was he was the last, for me, of the actual musicians that ran a record company. He just treated us well, but it's just it wasn't going to go any further. And uh, so we had the album that was it was in the can, or what we call it in the can. They hadn't released it, and they just, they just sat on it. And then, you know, we knocked around for a couple of years, toured with everybody in the world, because, again, we'd had some good relations with people, Chicago and, and Carol King and, and Seals and Cross, Bread, and Bread latched on to us. And uh, they just took us with them everywhere. So we always had plenty of work. We weren't, we weren't having difficulty in that world. We just could not latch on to that, that first dynamic single that was going to launch us. And then we had to deal with uh, Big Tree and really love to see it tonight. And we didn't really think that that was going to do anything either. But uh, it, it took off, and Big Tree Records was uh, was the hero on that. What's it like when you, the song takes off? Now, you're sitting there, and you didn't know how it was going to do. And you've been dropped by your label. I mean, you're touring, though, because you know, you know people, and people must like you. But what is it like? Is it sort of a feeling of... Uh, validation when all of a sudden you know you're, you're not getting signed and then the song comes out and it does well and it becomes a classic 
You know, I don't think we thought of it in that way. We, we thought of it in terms of, okay, we can continue to work and pay our bills. You know, that's, and we'll get another day at the, at the, um, at the park to step up to bat. So we never thought about being stars. We just thought about being musicians and playing the songs. The thing that was really tough on both Dan and I was the fact that we had written all the songs before on all of our albums. And so we'd kind of gotten into a condition of wanting to continue to write our songs. Well, this song they brought to us, and it was from Parker McGee. And um, Dan and I both looked at one another and said, man, this is this kind of a girl song. <laughs> and and I don't know whether we can do it. And they said, no, we want you to, we want you to try it because we think that it can be it can be something. And we said, okay. So we we did the song. All of a sudden, it takes off the way that it did. It's completely it surprised us, and we we never expected anything to happen with it. It takes off. We got our first royalty check. And I looked at that royalty check, and Dan and I were just thinking, you know, we want to write our own songs. But I thought, hey, Parker, buddy, what else you got? (laughs) 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 You you recognize, wait a minute, I can actually make money at this? Yeah, okay, that, that sounds pretty good. And then also, but again, it's... Having the song out there really allowed us to work a whole lot more. So that was that was really a nice a nice situation, an outcome of it. Now you said you know you were touring with Brad before that. When when you had the hit song, then did you start getting up to headline, or or were you still opening for bands? Or how was it working for your career? We actually we continued to open for bands. I mean, now that if you get one single, they throw you on stage. Like you're you're going to draw in twenty five thousand people, and it, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, but Dan and I were smart, and we continued to to open for people. Uh, Nilsa Vaca jumped on us, and and uh, and grabbed us, and had us touring with him a lot. Uh, we played with a lot of different bands. You know, Chicago Three Dog Night. We would open for those guys. And uh, I mean, it was good for them because now we could actually draw in audience and we could build up to a bigger audience having a hit single. And uh, we just kind of kept it going that way. We actually didn't start touring headlining until uh, the Sad to Belong uh, came out and gone too far. Now, now going from opener to headliner, is it? Did you feel more pressure because now you had to go on second and play longer, or was it something that you looked forward to? The difference between being a headliner and an opening act is that you used to be on this side of the stage in this dressing room. Now you're on the other side uh, in a different dressing room. That's about the extent of it. Uh, the, the pressure only gets um, a little bit crazy when you are traveling so much, and now you're doing a whole lot more radio interviews or television things. So you don't really have the opportunity to rest as much as you did before. And it, it kind of wears you down, so you get a little tired. But that's that's about the extent of it. I mean, it doesn't make any difference what time you finish at night, finish, or is that the only thing left open? So you're just going to go over there and eat, and and that's and that's pretty much it. It's not. I mean, I, I love these kids today because they think that it's so glamorous, and you're going to be doing this, and it's going to be party central, and you're just you know having the time of your life. No, you're really you're working a lot. And and you just you're in a town less than 24 hours by and large, 
you go to bed late, you get up early, you catch a plane, you go in, you do the interviews, you play the gig, you, you go eat, you jump in bed for a couple of hours, you jump up the next morning. I mean, it's, it's the same routine, and uh, you just kind of get used to it. I was telling my wife the other day, it's really funny because I've lived in about 18 different places in my life, and I noticed that I've never taken ownership of any place that I live. I come in, I still pretty much live out of a suitcase because I'm accustomed to living out of a suitcase. I go from this hotel to that hotel to the next hotel. And so it's like I never put pictures up on the wall. I just I just come in, pack my suitcase and, and there it is. <laughs> so that's good though. At least you know you know where your stuff is all the time. I know where my stuff is all the time. I knew one time I'd been on the road too long when I came home and I, I washed my clothes. I mean, we'd been out for like six weeks. Came in and washed all my clothes. And before I knew it, I had packed everything back in my suitcase. <laughs> so I went, oh, man, I've been gone too long. <laughs> so I got to ask you, and I, and I watched the show James at 15. How did How did you guys end up doing the theme for that? They they actually call us, because when you're popular, all of a sudden you're on everyone's radar. And they start looking for you to do things. They want you to be involved in this, because they think, well, they've got some name value, so therefore they're going to be able to draw in a certain percentage of the, of the audience as well. And they call us on the James at 15. They said, look, he's going from 15 to 16, and we need a new theme song. Would you would you consider this? And we went, well, Absolutely. And uh, so then we ended up writing that song and had all kinds of people that, you know, that we knew uh, recording on it, Max Bennett, you know, di different people of that nature. And uh, I mean, it was it was a great time. And then we got to be on the TV show and, and I got to throw him one line. I said, well, what do you want to hear? And he said, gone too far. And I went, you got it. And that was my entrance into the acting world. How did you how did you acclimate? Because it is quite different being on stage and being on camera. What and were you a little bit nervous being on camera? Because it's not when you're doing a concert, you're up there playing and you're you're calling the shots. But on when you even if you're playing your song on a song on a set, if the director doesn't like how it's going, they switch it. How did you acclimate for that first time when you were on camera? You know something? I didn't have any problem at all. I've never had a problem being in front of a movie camera like that. We did a lot of TV shows like uh, Mike Douglas or, or Dick Clark or, you know, Midnight Special, things of that nature. And so Dan had difficulty. Dan, Dan was probably one of the most funniest human beings you would ever meet in your life. He could keep you cracking up on, on a 24-hour basis. When he stepped on stage, something took over Dan, and he stopped talking. So I was the one that was left to do that, and I got very, very good at it, you know, telling stories and, and cracking jokes and things of that nature, because I didn't mind making a fool out of myself. Then when we got onto the camera, it was just a natural extension of that. And I, I just, again, just kind of gravitated to it. Uh, I, there was a couple of films that I did. And they were always giving me extra lines and extra scenes because I would just come up with, with stuff that was funny. And, um, I mean, it, it was very entertaining for me. And I, and I 
had to learn certain aspects of it as far as like on the first film that I was in, a thing called Scenes from the Gold Mines, they had me playing the drummer in the band. I didn't know how to play drums. <laughs> so they gave me a kit. They gave me the songs. I mean, we could all sing on the songs. Uh, Timothy B. Schmidt was the bass player and, and uh, you know, a couple of other people. They had the people like Catherine Mary Stewart and Cameron Dice actually sing the songs. Timothy and I did backgrounds. But I had to learn those songs. So I went in and I, I meticulously learned those songs from the top to the bottom. I mean, that thing started off, and I was right there, and I hit every single note all the way to the end. So I'm prepared to go. I get in the first day that we're, that we're doing drugs, and the guy says, okay, we're going to pick that up on the second half of the first verse out to, to the first uh, verse. And I went, what? Whoa, wait a minute. He's like, I know this thing from the top to the bottom. I don't know from the first verse to the first <laughs> second. Come on, man. I said, play it down. And I literally would have to listen to that thing and figure out what I had done. So I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was quite an experience in that way. Now, now, you guys, as you were getting bigger, what would you do with your gold records? What do, what do musicians do with gold records? Well, you can't eat them. <laughs> so... Uh, they're they're nice to put on the wall. I mean, first of all, it, it's it's a real honor that so many people thought enough of that song to go out and, and buy it and, and give you the status of a gold record. And uh, the first, the, I, I'll tell you honestly, I got my first single on "Really Love to See It" tonight, and that was that was nice. That was really because again, you you think. I've worked for this. This is what I was trying to get. And then I was walking down the street in Toronto, Canada, and we got news that we had gotten the first album, The Nights of Forever Had Gone Gold. And it was actually the first album on Big Three Records that went gold. So it was a, it was a double honor there for us. I'm walking down the street, and I'm going, I got a gold record. I got a gold record. Why don't I feel anything? It was the most empty feeling because you, you, you kind of looked at it and went, okay, I've done that, but what the hell do I do now? What's the next goal? You've achieved this goal, and you don't think about what are we going to do after that? You've achieved the goal. Now you've got to come up with new goals. Now, and so it kind of took me by surprise. Now, what were some of the goals you created at that moment? It must have been sort of an epiphany for you that you had to sit there and put something in your mind and make a plan. I don't think we ever came up with that second set of goals. I mean, personally for me, it was to continue to work and get as many as many good records as we possibly could and just and just go on maybe and produce a little bit later on. And that's what I did. I ended up producing a couple of girls. And, um, it, but I mean, as far as that, you find out just how short sighted the whole thing is. Now, you had success. You guys had some albums. And then I guess it was 1980, you split. Was it a, was it a good split? Were you just right, ready to go in different directions? What happened? Yeah, it depends on what kind of mood I'm in to whether I tell you what really happened or. What we <laughs> told everybody happened. 
But uh, there, there was uh, Dan and I had been together for quite a long time, and so we had always been able to talk with one another. It was a good relationship. There was there was a lot of respect, and musically, seriously, we we were moving apart. Dan was moving more country. I was moving moving more classical fusion jazz kind of thing. As it was evidenced on the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive album, and. Um, so we just we had people that all of a sudden started getting involved in our career that should not, and there's a divisiveness that comes from that. So one person is telling, "Hey, you know, you're you're the you're the guy in this group. You're if without the other guy, you know, you could make it on your own." And they start really kind of putting a lot of a lot of bad ideas in your head. No, you should be more rock and roll, man. You know, you, you should do these kinds of things. And you start listening to that advice and you start falling prey to it. And it's very destructive. And that happened to Dan and I. We had people that, that should not have gotten involved in our careers that we began listening to. And it was just, it just kind of took a downward hit. So when Love is the Answer really took off we said you know this is in the middle of the disco era we got this we got really lucky our days are numbered let's call it and that's what we did dan went off into country and i went off into acting and film and uh and other music now i gotta ask you guys i look on your website you see you said about the acting uh well this isn't acting but it says you co-hosted the mike douglas show now yeah, a couple was, times. Was that just you, or was that you and and uh, Dan? Oh, that that was Dan and I. I mean, a lot of the things that occurred occurred with Dan and I together, hosting those shows, um, uh, being on those shows. Mike Douglas was great to us. He was, he was such a nice guy. I mean, I never really ran into anybody on these shows that I had difficulties with. They were always good to us. They, they treated us well. Um, they, they would continue to bring us back. The only the only show that I ever had difficulty with was the Tonight Show. We had done it uh, once before, and um, so we were doing Sad to Belong. Well, I mean, they counted this song off so slow where it was, oh, it's sad to be, and I said, okay, stop. We're in the middle of the song, and I said, stop. This thing's too slow. We can't do it. And, man, they are coming out of the woodwork screaming at me, going, this is a live taping. What are you doing? You can't stop the thing. And so I said, man, it's too slow. We can't sing this thing. Well, after that, I mean, they, they did it again. They, they just did a pickup, and they played it again. And, of course, it was okay. Afterwards, man, everybody is on my case. They're yelling at me, and Dan's not saying anything. He's just sitting there going, and I'm taking it, man. But it was like, I, and I and I can dish it out. You know, you don't you don't jump on me because I'll come back at you. And and so we never got asked back to that show. And my manager was furious with me for quite some time after that. That's funny. I mean, it's just you know, it's just funny because they're playing it wrong. But of course, you're it's your fault. You know? It's my fault. And the thing is, is that it's my name on it. It's like, you know, we, we used to, to tell people, and I still tell people, a pickup band that comes in, listen, if you mess up, mess up really, really big so that everybody in the audience knows that it was you 
that messed up because otherwise they're just going to get there and go, you know, John Paul Foley doesn't sound good. <laughs> you know, no, it's the bass player that messed up. It wasn't, mine was fine. You know, so we just, <laughs> we just say, no, you mess up, you mess up big. Now, as I said, I'm looking at your website, and people's website is johnfordcoley.com. Now, you, you had all the shows you listed on, you know, as we said, you know, Mike Douglas show, The Tonight Show, Merv Griffin, and then it says, Make Me Laugh. Now, now, how did that, how did you get on that show? What happened there? First of all, I love to laugh. I mean, you, that that's probably my favorite thing in the world. I'm constantly telling jokes trying to make people laugh in some way. I do it on stage. I tell stories. I tell jokes. And so Make Me Laugh was big at that time. And I loved that show. And I thought, you know what? I want to be on this thing. And so they called. They got us on the show. And uh, the thing that was that was interesting for me was that I set off to the side of the stage for two different tapings. So by the time Dan and I, our taping comes up, meant anymore. And so they, Dan came right at the end, and some guy told the lamest joke or did something, and Dan cracked up laughing, and I went, Dan, Dan, doggone it, man, that wasn't even funny. So, I mean, but I love, I love shows like that. Now, you also pursued acting. You ended up being in a dream, a little dream. Now, did they know of you when you got cast in that, or did you have to audition, or or what what happened there? Because I know you played Susan Blakely's no. boyfriend. I mean, for that show, actually, Mark Rocco was the, was the director on that film, and I had worked on uh, another film that he did called Scenes from the Goldmine, where I played the drums. And the way that I got into that was um, uh, Alex Rocco, who um, who played Mo Green in The Godfather. He's the guy that got shot shot in the eye on the on the uh, massage table. Right. And so that was his kid, Mark Rocco. Well, he pulled all of us in. Joey Pantoliano from Sopranos, uh, uh, who wasn't on Sopranos at that time, but he went on Sopranos and Steve Wells back from, um, um, he played Charles Manson and Helter Skelter. All these people, you know, just kind of pulled in favors. Well, he pulled in me to play, and, he, and we pulled in Timothy B. Schmidt and, and uh, a couple of other people. And so then we had that film behind us. Well, when Dream a Little Dream came along, they liked what I had done. And so they pulled me and said, look, you can either play the school teacher or you can play Ron, the, the boyfriend. It was supposed to be Terry Gar, who was the, the girl, but it ended up being Susan Blakely. And it's the two Corys. And so I said, are you kidding, man? I get to, to, to beat, beat up Corey Feldman in this film? I want that role. And... uh so, I mean, it was it was really interesting because the first oh, first of all, I'm, I'm scheduled for like uh, three days. Three weeks later, I'm still there because they haven't gotten certain things working. Well, it took me about a week and a half, ten days before I actually got on on film. And so I was rehearsing the first scene because I take Corey Feldman and I kind of throw him down the stairs. Well, all my karate training comes up and I just literally grabbed him and threw him down on the ground and you hear this oh! <laughs> and they went uh, John maybe you might want to be a little bit more gentler on that and I went okay <laughs> but Corey and I were good friends and uh, but I got to beat him up and, and you know one of the things that happened with Susan Blakely who's just an absolute sweetheart 
she pulled me in on so many scenes because she didn't feel that it was right that she would be there unaccompanied. And I'm her boyfriend, so she she would keep me in. And the weirdest thing happened on that film, there, there, and it never made the film, but I had a big kissing scene with Susan Blakely. Now, here's her husband sitting right over in the armchair off camera while I'm in this make-out scene with his wife. My wife finds out about it, and it's like, oh, all hell breaks loose. She's pregnant. I'm going, oh, man, come on, no. And so uh, that, that, was a, that was a very fun time. But, I mean, I got, I got to say that I was on, on the film with Jason Robards and uh, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, there, were, there was the, the girl, jeez, I can't think of her name. I can see her face. Uh, she was on Saturday Night Live. Um, Oh gosh, she played the girlfriend, or she played the wife and the mother. Um, but anyway, I just I just met her not too long ago. We were in the same film. We just weren't working the same days. Right. So you know, you you have some wonderful experiences with acting. Now with the acting, another interesting thing is you were part of America's Most Wanted. Yeah. Now, and it solved the case very quickly. Now, did you have to audition for that? And and you you had to play pretty much a scumbag. So how did you how did that come about? I I actually had to audition for that film, and um, so then I got it. And I really wanted to play a scumbag because again, you know, I, I'm I'm one of these guys that laughs a lot, and and uh, so I don't have a reputation for being down and dirty and nasty. I mean, you know, I I, I can literally look at somebody and say, I hate your guts, I'm going to kill you, and then I'm going to cut your heart out and, and, and throw it up on the roof. And it sounds like, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. You know, it's just, it's, I don't have that kind of killer kind of uh, personality. So to be able to play those kinds of roles was going to be a stretch for me. And so I played this guy. He was a scumbag. He was a dirt bag he uh you know he beat girls up to the point of breaking teeth and he was into every drug in the world and he ends up getting killed now the hard part of that film was the fact that we're on the on the, the shoot the very first day and the detective I'm, I'm in the uh in the trailer and a detective walks in and he goes john he says i did not know this was going to happen but your character, the guy's name was uh, 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 something, Helen Settler, I forget, uh, Vance. He, his daughter has come, and she wants to tell you some things about her father. And I thought, oh, man, no. Jeez, how, how is this going to work? Because I've got a script of what this guy is. Now his daughter wants to tell me all the great, wonderful things about her father. She's about 12 years old. How am I going to stay true to the script and not destroy this young girl's image of, of what Papa was? And man, that was a tough one. That was a tough one. So what did you do? I mean, how, how did you play it? I mean, what was... You know? I, I, yeah, I just kind of played it straight. I mean, I don't think I softened up or anything. Um, and my, my character gets killed, so I didn't have to worry about anybody coming after me otherwise. But, uh, I mean, you know, I'm running the guy's blood. And trying. I'm thinking about 
what am I going to do here for this this little girl? And, I, and you know, I tried to contact her after the thing came out, but I never I never heard back from her. So I don't think she probably was very pleased with me. Now, now, as you're acting and you're getting into this acting career and you're getting work, are you still writing music on your own and playing, or were you just focused on acting? I, you know, I it's it's always you continue to do the uh, the music, and I would go out and I would play occasionally. It wasn't something that I was doing on a continual basis like I had done before, because again, I didn't have a recording contract, and I was I was only half of the group. And Dan actually was the lead singer, so I was having to learn how to go out and sing lead on my own, and that was something of a challenge. Why was it a challenge? Just because you really have to, even though you you can tell stories, you can act, so you have the the, the presence. Was it just were you confident in your voice, or was it just something that being there on your by yourself or just singing up front was nerve wracking? I know it's the fact that I didn't have the confidence for it. And Dan had always been the lead singer. Dan had a great voice. And I was a harmony singer. And even when Dan and I would, would even if I did sing a song uh, lead on, on one of the records, I also sang harmony because Dan couldn't sing harmony. And so it was a thing of, of comparison. You're John Ford Coley. So as a result, there's a certain standard that people expect out of you. And if you couldn't meet that standard, then it kind of diminished the, the act, and it kind of diminished me. So I really had to work at that. And the way that I look at it now is that uh, vocally, I couldn't touch then what I can do now. It's just you get better, you get more confident at it. Walking up on stage and playing by myself, it's it's not a difficult thing at all. You just, you're, you're, you know how to do it now. Now... Do you feel that because you've been playing for a long time and as you switch to being you on stage singing, does your voice change at all? Because as we get older, our voices can change at times. Yeah, it's gotten a little bit deeper and it's gotten a little bit raspier because, again, you know, you I, I sing a lot. I can still hit high notes. I still do everything in the original key, which I'm really blessed on that. But, I mean, I play all the time. Even when... Uh, I'm at home, you know, I, I play. I, I went to the Philippines one time and they said, don't bring your guitar. You know, this time you just come, we'll get you a guitar while you're here. And, and that way you don't have to carry that thing around. And I said, well, what do I do in the hotel room? What do I do in the airport? I, this isn't something that I just pick up and I play when I go on stage. I, I play these things all the time. As a matter of fact, I had a friend of mine call me one time. We were doing a gig together, and he said, uh, I, I pulled my guitar out of the case, and I put new strings on it, and I've been practicing your songs, and, I, and, I, and I'm ready to go. And I said, really? I said, you pulled, you pulled your guitar out of the case? And he said, yeah. He said, I put new strings on it. He said, I've been practicing your songs, and, 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 and I'm ready for it. And I said, you pulled your guitar out of the case? And he said, yeah, I pulled my guitar out of the case. And I said, what was it doing in the case? <laughs> I mean, I come home, first thing I do is I take my guitar out and I put it on the stand. I pass by, pick it up, I grab it, I play it. And he, it kind of made him mad, but I noticed that he only played his guitar when he went on stage. And I thought, man, I just can't do that. I just, I just play all the time. Now, you live in Nashville, you said. When did you move to Nashville? What was the reason you went down there? I came here because um, 
I had been trying to put songs in films. I'd been doing pretty good doing that. But I'd been coming back because music was changing, and I wasn't having the kind of success in Los Angeles that I had had before. So it was time for a change, and Nashville seemed to be a good place. So I'd been coming back here playing the thing like uh, Ken Pan South. I'd been writing with a lot of different people. And when I came back to Nashville, the thing that I noticed more than anything else was that I got my lunch handed to me as far as writing was concerned, as far as playing was concerned, because here's all these great players. Okay, I've written hit songs. I've, I've been playing for years. But all of a sudden, people are playing me under the table. They're writing me under the table. And I just went, whoa, stop. Just show, what did you just do? Show me what you just did. Let's write here. I want to write with this and, and, and write with that and, and show me how you're doing it. And it was such an education for me. I mean, I fell in love with that and made a lot of good friends here. I learned, and I've, I've continued to learn the entire time. There's something about being in an environment. It's like, okay, you, li you lived in Hollywood area for a while. Hollywood is probably one of the seediest, grungiest places that you'll ever walk into. It can be borderline despicable. But when you walk into that town, there is something there that just inspires you beyond belief, that kicks your creative juices up, and you find yourself just writing and, and being involved in all kinds of really good things musically or, or acting-wise. Nashville's the same way. It's, it's got that ability. I mean, I lived in South Carolina for a while. I went down to Charleston. I'll play my guitar or my piano in Nashville for hours on end. I would go to Charleston. I'd pick it up for five minutes, and I'd put it down because there was nothing coming back creatively. So, you know, you get into that kind of environment. You get around people that are energetic and, and, and are motivating. And, 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 you know, you're, you're running into somebody new. They've got this idea. They've got that idea. And it's a learning curve. And, man, I just jumped into it full throttle. Now, you jumped into it. And did you feel you were gaining? Did it take you? I mean, you said in the beginning, you said you were getting your lunch handed to you. How long did it, did it take for you to feel that you were getting into the groove there? Oh, I don't think I've ever gotten into the groove. <laughs> I think, man, I'm still learning all the time. I go in with expectations of not really teaching anybody anything, but, but just literally being a sponge. And, um, I mean, I, I, I've gained so much, but when I look at it, I think, you know, there's just so much more to learn. You walk into a place and somebody does something new, and I joke with them. I go, hey, you know, could you maybe, like, download those guitars, the chords on your guitar, onto my guitar, because I don't think my guitar has those chords. <laughs> you know, you just you just kind of laugh about it and go, man, there's just there's just too much to learn. You're always playing with somebody new. It's like the other night I played with Teddy Gentry and uh, from Alabama and Lenny LeBlanc, and Lenny used to open for us years ago in LeBlanc and Car. For the the other night, I went to go see this young girl, a friend of mine. Uh, um, Mary Owen, uh, who's Donna Reed's daughter, uh, from, she came here for It's a Wonderful Life, and 
who would have those uh, talks to the audience and stuff. And she had a friend, and she said, would you mind going to see her? And I would love to go see her. So I go down to the city winery, and I'm sitting there with my friend. And I looked over, and I said, man, that's Kim Carnes over there. And I haven't seen her in a couple of months, you know, because we play together. So I go over and talk to her. And then I'm, I'm looking at the back of this guy. as, as I, I walked over, and I saw his face. I'm looking at the back of him, and I said, Kim, is that Steve Cropper? And she went, you know, I've been looking. I think it is. So I just walked over and said, Steve. And he went, yeah. And I went, John Ford Coley. Well, we'd had things that we had done together before. And then I'm walking by, and, and I looked at this guy, and I, I just walked over to him, and I said, you're Paul Schaefer, right? And he went, well, yeah. And I said, John Ford Coley. And we sat there. It's a guy from the, from the Letterman show. So you're always running into people. And that that's inspiring within itself. Now, since you've been down there, I know you came out in 2016 with a with a, your solo album, Electric. What was the process of rec- recording that? How did you go? How did you tackle that? We actually planned on making that thing uh, a, a, a um, an acoustic record. I was just going to play some songs, but as I thought about it, I've got all these songs that I wanted to do, and people are coming to me still, knowing that I'm recording, and they're going, John, man. Come on, I got this. This song is a hit song. You need to do this song. Put you on the radio. I said, man, I'm not trying to pull the slot machine handle anymore. I, radio is not going to pick me up. They're not picking up anybody in, in our bracket. So I just want to do the songs that I like that I've written and put them out. So I couldn't. I couldn't cut down songs. And we ended up with 26 songs on this, making it a double CD. We did everything backwards on it, as opposed to going in and recording with a band. I recorded these things with an acoustic guitar, piano, and did the vocal. If we were going to add anything onto it, we added it onto, onto it later. And there's a lot of those songs that I listen to going, man, how in the world did we ever get to that point? It, it's it, this was like it was beyond our control. So Tony Coleman came. Tony was uh, the drummer for BB King for for a good number of years. He just took it in another direction. Uh, Tom Worth, the guy that I worked with it on, you know, he had so many ideas, and we ended up having songs from like 1983 all the way up to um, to, to the last song that I wrote uh, about. Uh, the night before, literally, and and I call wild horses, and so I just I just started at the concerts and and it, it's called eclectic because again it's everything from country to pop to I tell everybody's cut the only thing that it doesn't have on it is rap and Lithuanian disco polka that's the only <laughs> style that I, and flamenco you know it's just. Because again, it's, when I sit down to write a song, I don't think, okay, I'm going to write a uh, a country song today. Whatever comes out is what comes out. I don't fight it and I don't mess with it. I just do it. So uh, that's pretty much what this song is, and it, it contains a lot of different styles. The first side is all band. The second side is pretty much acoustic. Uh, a lot of ballads. Now you have some concert dates coming up. Now, when you do these dates, do you put in your stuff from your your this, this latest album and do some of uh, the uh, the old stuff? How do you formulate your concert? Many people come to go down memory lane when they think about Dan and I or they think about me, 
And so I play a lot of the songs that they would expect to hear all the hits. I go a little bit deeper into the album sometimes. So I play Soldier in the Rain or Westward Wind or Who's Lonely Now, Falling Stars, things things like that. Uh, I might play a couple of songs that uh, somebody else has played, like I played Leader of the Band by Dan Fogelberg because I really like that song. Um, and also I play a couple of the songs that are off the new record, chiefly because people don't respond very well to songs that they don't know. So I I, I, I don't try to make a whole evening of it you know, in that way. I, I, I play the songs that they would expect to hear. Now, how many times have you performed and someone has come up and said, man, I made out to my girlfriend with some of your songs? Because that's like, that's like the thing. Like they were always, they were good makeout songs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I got that. And I just look at them sometimes and go, you don't have any children named after you, do you? Because, you know, <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's gratifying. People have gotten married to those songs, and and it was their first dance or their first kiss or things like that. And it's really, it's very gratifying. I'm I'm very pleased to hear things like that. Now, do you have any uh, plans for a new album coming out? Are you constantly still writing, or what what are you doing? I constantly still write. It's something that you can't not do. And, uh, I mean, even the songs that are on the collected, I, I figured, well, nobody's ever going to hear these songs, but that still didn't stop me from writing them. It's like one time I came to Nashville, the first time that I came to Nashville with my wife, I played a, um, a songwriter in the round. And after it was over, she looked at me, was kind of surprised, because she'd never really heard me go in and play. She'd seen little things before, but not like that. And she said, you honestly cannot not do this, can you? And I said, no, I can't. Because it's in your blood. And you, 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 your DNA, you just do it. And I just play because I truly enjoy it. It's not something that I have to do. I never practice. I just, I just play and sit down and, and, enjoy myself because you know i think for me the way that i've seen things over the years with the music industry is that we've lost sight of what music really is music the object of music is not a recording contract it's not a publishing deal it's just to play it's to enjoy and that's what we used to do but we've turned it into a business and um now a lot of the really good musicians can't get through because there's so many other people that look better and uh, you, you forget what the object was. Well, you know what, man, I, I, uh, I want to thank you for coming on today. This has been great. And, uh, and you're going to go out on the road and you probably love it. And I know you're going to be in uh, the Philadelphia area, February 22nd. You're going to be in Arizona, February 14th and people, you can find all John's uh, concert dates at johnfordcoley.com. You can also find his book there and you can buy his, latest album eclectic so uh i want to thank you for coming on john it was great talking to you thank you very much i appreciate you taking the time no problem and people so check out john and check out me go to my website coopertalk.net you can find over 700 episodes email me cooper at coopertalk.net follow me on twitter at coopertalk remember i'm steve cooper i'm only as hip as my guests don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins and i'll talk to you next time